0: Hi there, my name is Natalie Nation, and you're listening to Feed That Nation. Today I'm going to be talking about a topic that I really didn't talk about a few weeks ago when I did my episode about processed foods. I very deliberately left out a particular topic that I know can be pretty inflammatory. So today I'm going to be talking about food additives. More specifically, I'm going to be talking about different categories of food additives, talking about a few of the most common food additives, what they are, what they do, and giving you some tips so that when you're deciding which food additives you do or maybe do not want to consume, you know how to look through great research and make really well informed decisions. Before I get too far into this, I wanted to take a dive back into the food production history in the U.S because in the 18 and 1900s some pretty dramatic changes occurred. A couple of these were the invention of the icebox and later the refrigerator, we had the invention of pasteurization by Louis Pasteur, and we also had just sort of this massive uptick in bulk produced shelf stable food products. And all of these contributed to the modern food supply as we know it today we as you know a national and even global society have one of the largest most stable food supplies in the history of humanity and that's pretty insane and food additives are definitely one of the reasons for that so there's two main categories of food additives that I wanted to talk about today One of them is this category of food additives that are added to foods to improve the taste, the color, or the overall appeal of the product, so to make the product more pleasurable or desirable for consumers. The other other category is food additives that are added to a product to help it stay shelf stable longer, so to kill bacteria, prevent bacteria from growing, to keep the food from going bad or from spoiling. There's also a subcategory of food additives that sort of change physical properties of the food for one of the two reasons i've already listed but it's pretty cool how all of that works so i wanted to get into it a little bit more specifically so our first category of food additives that are added for taste appeal texture pleasure to make the food more desirable and we think about this there's a lot of different examples that i could give one of the most obvious is when we eat a cheeto we want the Cheeto to be that really specific color of bright orange. We want it to smell super cheesy and we want the color to like fall off and stay on our fingers, right? Or when we are eating a blue raspberry Jolly Rancher, we know logically that raspberries fall between, you know, red and purple. We know that when you crush a raspberry, it doesn't turn that electric blue color. And we know that when we eat a Jolly Rancher, the main ingredients, if we took out all of these additional food additives, would essentially be sugar and water, and it wouldn't really taste like anything. So really, the consumer market drives the addition of these food additives into popularly consumed foods. You know, we want our foods to be pleasurable and to be desirable, so companies make foods that fit those desires. One of the most common food additives is something called monosodium glutamate or MSG. Now this food additive is found in different types of gravy mixes or stuffing mixes. It's used in a lot of Asian type cooking or you can buy it in a bottle for its own use um, as an ingredient in cooking. And what MSG does is it adds a very savory salty umami flavor to foods And I've heard it described as sort of what makes food taste good in the first place. You could add MSG to pretty much anything and it would make food taste good or taste better. And I've been always very intrigued by this idea and as a vegetarian, I'm always looking for foods that have that nice umami savory flavor that aren't meat. So I've actually been really interested in cooking with MSG and seeing what it could do for the foods I cook. And it's sort of a hot topic because There are a few people out there that are sensitive to MSG. Um, They might get flushed, dizzy, or have headaches when they consume foods with MSG in them. And this has sort of sparked this belief that MSG is bad for you, which there's not evidence to suggest, or there's not significant evidence, I should say, to suggest that for the generally healthy population, MSG is harmful. And I would just want to add that stipulation here that, yes, there are going to be people who are sensitive to a lot of the food additives that I'm going to talk about today, but in general there's not evidence to suggest that most of the food additives I'm going to talk about are harmful to all people and not all people will have significant reactions. Outside of MSG, we also have this very broad category of food additives that are pretty vaguely labeled on most packaging. So you might see Artificial flavor, artificial color, natural flavor, natural color, or you might see some of the food dyes in particular like Blue 6 or Red 1, things like that. And what these do is essentially they help the food to look and taste the way the consumer wants it to look and taste. We want our Blue Raspberry Jolly Rancher to look and taste like Blue Raspberry or we want our Cheeto to be very bright orange. We want our Dr. Pepper to be that nice signature brown color and to have all 23 of its unique flavors, right? So that's where a lot of these artificial and natural flavors and colors come in. Now, sort of the issue that I see with this is because the labeling is sort of vague, it can be difficult to tell exactly what these artificial flavors and colors are made of. And for people who have things like celiac disease, this can be a bit dangerous because You don't know if something that just is labeled artificial flavor has gluten in it and you don't know if it's safe to eat. So I would hope in the future that food packaging moves towards being more transparent for this reason, but also I think we as a society and certainly we as people my age being somewhere between that Gen Z millennial age range, we want transparency from the companies that produce our food or really produce anything for us. Just like with the MSG, there are a few people who are sensitive to specific flavors or colors. Specifically, there are people who have allergies to certain food dyes. I know red dye is a very popular food allergy, but this doesn't mean that they're harmful. It just means that very specific people have specific reactions to them. Another category of food additives is sweeteners. And we think of our pretty common sweeteners, our corn syrup, our high fructose corn syrup, our sugar, invert sugar, things like that. We also have a category of sweeteners called sugar alcohols. So xylitol, erythritol, mannitol, and so forth. And we have our non-nutritive sweeteners. So these are sweeteners that add sweet taste to a food without adding calories. So you guys might know these as Splenda, Equal, Sweet and Low, Stevia, and then there are a couple... (laughs) that are put into food products that aren't necessarily put in packets on your coffee cart. And we, as particularly an American society, we desire sweet foods. And as we learned on my very first podcast that I ever did on Feed That Nation with Nula Babowski, the food scientist, we remember that we, as humans, have evolved to crave sweet because sweet means carbohydrates and carbohydrates mean fuel. However, this sort of extends into a lot of food having sugar that kind of or sugar sweet flavors that we're not expecting to. I mean sugar can be added into things like pasta sauce which kind of baffles me so I'm always a little bit careful to read labels just because I don't think my pasta sauce needs sugar in it to taste good or taste like pasta sauce but that's a personal preference. When we're thinking about all these different types of sweeteners there are different documented reactions that some people have to some of them. There are a couple of people out there who are more sensitive to high fructose corn syrup. I've seen a few different studies linking it to issues with learning disabilities, but I haven't done a whole lot of research in that area. I also know that depending on the types of taste receptors or taste genes that you express, you might taste equal or other particular non-nutritive sweeteners as bitter, or you might not be able to taste them at all, which I think is pretty cool. And we have some pretty well-documented reactions to a couple of sugar alcohols, particularly when they are consumed in high amounts. So usually when you're consuming a sugar-free candy or a product, there's a label telling you not to consume too much of it at one time because some of these sugar alcohols can cause uncomfortable bloating or diarrhea or issues like that if you consume too much of it at one time. And just to reiterate, all of these food additives are not added by companies to trick you. They're really added out of the consumer desire for these products. And I guess a good current example I can give from popular culture is General Mills and Trix cereal. So a couple of years ago, General Mills announced that they were going to get rid of um, artificial flavors and colors in their Trix cereal, which is a fruity flavored, brightly colored breakfast cereal, usually for kids. And so they created this all-natural trick cereal. They used things like turmeric and beet as coloring. They used natural flavors. And it did not sell very well at all because people, as much as society has started to say that they want no more artificial flavors and colors, people didn't want bland, boring colored tricks. They wanted the brightly colored cereal that they were used to. you know, And they wanted it to taste like they were used to as well. So that's just an interesting example. I think it's a little funny to think about how, you know, this company tried to appeal to the masses only to find out that the masses actually wanted the original. They wanted something to taste good. We as humans can say what we want about how we choose healthy food and there are all kinds of influencers and I would call them stupid little gimmicks like nothing tastes as good as skinny feels or whatever. But in reality, we as humans, We desire food that is pleasurable to us. And these food additives create that experience for us, which is why we keep purchasing foods that have these additives. The other main category of food additives is food additives that preserve food products. So they might do that in a couple of different ways. They might lower the pH of foods to kill the bacteria. They might create an environment where bacteria does not wanna grow. They might stabilize something about the food product so it cannot separate. They might keep it from spoiling. And this is, again, a very positive thing. I, as a nutrition public health professional, definitely see the benefit in having shelf stable foods that can last for months at a time, You know, if there was a time of a natural disaster. Or even just this ability to grow a fruit in another country, package it, can it, make it super shelf-stable, ship it to a grocery store elsewhere where it might sit for a few months, then it gets bought and put into someone's home and they keep it for a month before they eat it and it's still excellent nutrition and it's really excellent just shelf-stable food. I see definite benefits in that. One of the oldest and most common even today food preservatives is salt. And we see salt added as not only just a flavor because salt improves or brings out the flavors that already exist in foods, but it also helps to absorb water. So it's a desiccant or it desiccates. I love that word. So in the pioneer days, they actually used to preserve meat by just shaking huge amounts of salt on it to draw out the moisture and where there is not moisture, there can't be bacteria because bacteria love warm, moist environments. So if you get rid of one of those aspects, the moist aspect, then the bacteria can't grow. Then it is safe and does not spoil. Another place where we see pretty commonly added food additives is in canned fruit. We see sometimes something called ascorbic acid. And what ascorbic acid is, it's basically vitamin C, which is really interesting because along with preserving the food, it helps to add a bit more nutrients to it. And what ascorbic acid does, particularly in products like applesauce, is because it's an acid, it adds tart flavor to the food, which we want. We, don't, we want a nice tart applesauce most of the time. But because it is an acid, it lowers the pH of the applesauce low enough so that bacteria do not have a welcoming environment to grow. Because bacteria, along with liking moist environments, they like moist environments that are not too acidic. So if you increase the acidity of a food product, you decrease the chance that bacteria will grow in it. There are also food additives for preservation purposes, things like sodium nitrite and sodium benzoate, and these additives are usually added to things like processed meats or canned or pickled items. There's conflicting research to suggest that there is the possibility that consuming large amounts of these particular additives over a whole lifetime could increase the chances that you develop cancer. However, and I just want to say here that there's lots of science and that you should do your own research, my personal opinion on a lot of these studies is that because they are studies that just examine people's patterns of food consumption over time, it's really difficult to tell whether it is these particular additives that might contribute to risk for cancer or if it's something else that the study has looked at or even something the study hasn't considered. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. But just know that if you see a blog post or an Instagram post talking about how nitrites and sodium benzoate are just the devil and they're going to kill you it's probably hyperbole, definitely probably hyperbole. <laughs> we have our category of food additives for pleasure purposes and we have our food additives for preservation purposes. There's also sort of this middle subcategory of food additives that are added specifically to change physical aspects of the food product to contribute to one of these bigger categories but they do some pretty cool stuff so i wanted to make sure to touch on them in particular and a great food product that i love to give as an example for this is ice cream so ice cream is a food that most people if not all people are very familiar with they have a very set expectation for how they want it to taste how it should last and what it should feel like mouthfeel you know and ice cream has to be kept frozen, hence ice cream. That's kind of one of the biggest things about the food product is that it must be kept frozen. And homemade ice cream, if you've ever made ice cream at home, you know that it melts really quickly and it has a different consistency than store-bought ice cream. And that's because store-bought ice cream often has to go from production to distribution to the stores where it sits in a freezer that's opened and closed multiple times a day, then it's taken out of its freezer in the store, put into a cart, brought all the way down through the store, which, you know, could take five minutes, it could take an hour. Then it's put into the back of a car, which depending on where you live, it might be 100 degrees or it might be negative 20 in that car, taken home and then put into that home freezer where the door to that home freezer might be open and closed multiple times before the ice cream actually gets consumed. So all of that to say... (laughs) that it's really important actually that we have some food additives into the ice cream in order to help stabilize it and texturize it. We don't want our ice cream to melt between putting it into the cart and taking it home and putting it in our freezer at home. And we don't want it to sit in a freezer for months and melt and refreeze and get those weird ice crystals and taste all fuzzy in our mouths, you know? We want it to be, you know, smooth, creamy, rich, we want it to feel good in our mouth. We want it to taste good. We don't want it to melt. And so adding food additives, and I just have a couple that I'm thinking of. So things like carrageenan, xanthan gum, or guar gum. These are additives that are added specifically to stabilize and texturize foods like ice cream to help create that ideal situation where a food keeps the desirable texture even under unusual or extreme conditions. Other examples of... Food additives to change physical properties might be the addition of emulsifiers to certain foods. So an emulsifier is essentially um, a chemical that helps a compound that has both oil and water in it to homogenize. And I know that sounds very science but you might see an emulsifier in something like chocolate which likely has milk fat and milk skim milk in it. You might see it in mayonnaise or you might see it in other, like a salad dressing, you might see an emulsifier there. You also might see additives in seasoning mixes or other powdery food products to keep them from caking, which happens in damp environments. So if you've ever had like a container of baking soda and it sat out for too long, or it's been in the fridge for too long and the fridge was really humid and then it just turns into this big like block of baking soda. Well, a cake, an anti-caking agent might help to prevent that or might help to help the product stay powdery for longer things like that so understanding these two big categories and the subcategory that i just talked about i wanted to think a little bit more about and tell you guys a little bit more about how this process of adding food additives using food additives is regulated in the united states So all food and food production is overseen by the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA. This is in the US, I don't know how it goes in other countries, but we have the FDA. And the FDA has a designation for foods and food substances or food additives that is called generally recognized as SAFE or GRAS. And if a food or a food substance has received this GRAS label, essentially what it means is that There is significant scientific evidence to suggest that for any particular food additive, if it is used in the way that is intended to be used, in the amount that is intended to be used in, it is relatively safe. This of course doesn't mean that it's safe all the time for all people, or that there might not be evidence one day to suggest that it is no longer safe, but it does mean that as far as we know and as far as science has been proven, that particular additive is relatively safe and the FDA has a whole web page and several lists of all the products that it has with the GRAS designation and I'm gonna leave that link down in the show notes in the description if you guys are more interested in reading about that specifically along with the FDA we also have thousands of scholarly research articles that have done tests on everything from human tests animal tests tests just theoretically doing research reviews or literature reviews talking about these food additives their role in food production what they can do for the human body if they're harmful if they're not examining long-term use effects we have so much data available to us there's also on the flip side of that we have a lot of data in the form of blog posts or news articles instagram TikTok even is starting to get into this, where a lot of second, secondary or even tertiary sources are talking about these food additives. Talking about these food additives, going over whether or not they're safe, giving evidence which may or may not be science-based evidence, may or may not be true. So you have a lot of options when it comes to doing your own research about whether or not you want to consume foods with particular food additives in them. And if you know me or if you've been watching me for a while, you know that I'm not just going to give you a list of food additives to avoid, food additives that are fine. (laughs) I'm not really a list person. I really like talking about food on a spectrum rather than putting it into these binary categories, these yes, no, always, never, clean, toxic categories. That's just not really me. So what I do want to do is talk about how you can best look at your literature and make informed decisions for yourself. And one of the biggest, biggest ways that you can do that is by thinking about your Google search bias and working to combat that Google search bias. One of the biggest ways you can do that obviously is by using reputable websites for your searching, you know, searching on websites like PubMed or other, the Cochrane database. So looking at places that have peer reviewed scientific articles. Government websites are also a pretty good tool for this. The FDA website is a great resource. But when you're going into just like a basic search engine like Google, it can be really easy to get information that is very biased simply by inputting specific keywords. For example, if you're wondering about if a certain additive is safe or not, and you type in the keywords additive, whatever additive it is, and then dangerous, you're likely going to get specific articles talking about why that additive is dangerous. Same goes if you type in specific additive and causes cancer. You're pretty much only going to get articles about how that additive causes cancer. So what I like to do to kind of combat this search engine bias, if I'm curious about something, wanting to learn more, but wanting to read about it myself rather than only being presented with one type of data, I will do things like search food additive, food production, or food additive health benefits, or food additive health impacts. And what this does is it gets you more, I don't want to say unbiased because all data is biased in some way, but it gets you information that's more about teaching you the why and the how rather than just spitting an opinion at you. So I've had a lot of luck just changing my keywords to find the information that I want. More importantly, if you're looking at a study or if you're reading a news article about a study, make sure you know whether or not the study was done on humans, because a lot of studies are actually done on animals and then the data is extrapolated by news sources to talk about humans as though the study was actually done on humans, even though it was done on like rats or something. And just know that an association or a correlation is not cause and effect, which, It's kind of hard to grasp, I know, but just take everything you're reading with a grain of salt, always. It can be really difficult with all of the research and all of the buzzwords and the inflammatory information out there, particularly if you're reading people's personal blogs or on their Instagrams and they're talking about certain things. It can be really difficult to know whether it's true or not or whether you should follow it or not. So I would encourage you to make decisions about your health and your food consumption based on what you know about your body and the way it likes to eat food or the way it reacts to food, but also base your choices on good scientific evidence, good evidence-based research, and your own common sense because you're smart and I know you have common sense. I also want to say that often, (laughs) probably more often than not, good evidence-based research and common sense are probably not going to be found on social media. And I'm not excluding myself from that whatsoever. Definitely, if you're reading anything on social media about your health, take it with a grain of salt, fact check it, do your own research about it. I also wanted to say that if you are in a position in your life where you are able to make your food choices based on things like whether or not they have additives or whether or not they're organic, then you're in a place of privilege because as a society, particularly in America, we have set up our food supply so that the most expensive foods, so fresh fruits and vegetables or freshly ground or butchered meat, are far, far more expensive than things like canned fruits and vegetables or TV dinners or processed deli meats. And when we're thinking about this bigger issue of food distribution and food insecurity, it, it gets really difficult. Because there are a lot of people out there who must make their food choices based on whether or not they can afford specific items or not. So, and I mean I don't mean this to hate on anybody at all because if you are in a place where you can make food decisions based on whether or not you want to consume a lot of additives, that's awesome and I really encourage you to make decisions that you feel are right for you and your body. But while you're doing that, make sure you remember that you are in a place of privilege. So that just about wraps up this episode of Feed That Nation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and discussion. I would love to hear what you think about food additives, or whether or not you prefer to consume foods with or without food additives. Please leave me a comment below, leave me a review or a five-star rating, definitely subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, and go follow me on Instagram, I am at Feed That Nation. Until next time, my name is Natalie Nation, and you've been listening to Feed That Nation. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.